Hi, everybody. Welcome to the August 2nd, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the over 227,000 signatures submitted for a ballot measure to undo the Colorado law that would commit the state's presidential electoral votes to the national popular vote winner. Patty Calhoun from Westward, that is a lot of signatures, but, and I can kind of predict a, an anti-California campaign coming from said uh, supporters, do you think it's going to be enough? Does it, does it uh, showcase the kind of support this law would have? I think there's going to be a lot of support for it. People were peeved when it went through so quickly. Just remember, we've got a whole year and a big presidential campaign coming up that's going to have everyone riled up, and this could definitely ride the tip the tale of that. Krista Kafer, columnist of the Denver Post. Are we bound for an, another electoral college education for the remainder of this year as this gets onto the ballot? You know, anytime you can crack open the uh, Constitution, it's a good thing. I am so excited about this. This was the first time I ever gathered signatures. I gathered signatures from my friends. I got signatures from Democrats that are my friends, uh, independents, Republicans, people who just aren't even political. They were like, don't outsource my vote to California and, and New York. And so I'm excited. People have risen up. We're going to do something. Eric Soderman, political analyst. Uh, there's a lot to crack open here. Uh, Coloradans can be pretty libertarian when it comes to ballot issues. Because of that, and I think because the predictable, as we've already heard, the anti-California campaign, does this have uh, some wind at its sails? Well, I think it has wind at its sails. There'll be an opposition campaign, which will also be funded, and uh, we'll have a battle royale here. But 227,000 signatures is nothing to sneeze at, including better part of 100,000 coming from volunteers that weren't, uh, you know, that they didn't have to pay for those signatures. If we're going to change the Electoral College, how about doing it the right way through a constitutional amendment? Now, obviously, that can't be done because you're not going to get enough small states to ever sign off on it. But I think what this reeks of is sort of a backdoor approach uh, that Democrats have adopted to try to get rid of it tacitly uh, instead of officially uh, around the country. I think there will be a pushback, and I think that pushback, as reflected around this table, will come from all different kinds of ideologies. Anna Staver, reporter of the Denver Post, rounds up the panel. Anna, what do you think the reaction is going to be from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle? Because this is where the whole idea started from, and then the, this ballot measure is rebuking that effort. Uh, what do we need to know about the legislative effort? Well, actually, I think the sponsors of the bill are excited to have this argument, or at least they say that they are. Um, they think that, um, rightly or wrongly, this is tied to the Trump presidency because he won without winning the popular vote. And so the Democratic lawmakers who sponsored this said, like, they see one person, one vote as their selling point next year. And they're hopeful that that will take them across the finish line. National commentators had mixed debate reviews for Colorado's two presidential hopefuls, John Hickenlooper or Senator Michael Bennett. Hickenlooper was noted for his throw-your-hands-the-air contest with Senator Bernie Sanders. Meanwhile, Bennett's appearance gave him a chance to talk about his viewpoints on Medicare for All, where he went head-to-head with Senator Kamala Harris, and I think also probably a brief uh, hashtag or uh, Twitter trending about Angry Bennett. Uh, Patty, uh, the next debate has a far tougher criteria to participate, likely one that neither Hickenlooper or Bennett are going to hit. Do you feel that that lack of participation is going to uh, close the curtain on either one of these campaigns or we're debating far too early in the season anyway, so who cares? 
Well, talk about how early it is. At this time, four years ago, the Republicans had yet to have a debate. So you hadn't seen that Trump was going to play as well as it, he did. The second debate was in September. The first was in August. So there can still be some surprises. I think the surprise probably for both Bennett and Hickenlooper was Colorado is not the center of the universe, which I think we tend to forget because we do get so much national attention because journalists want to come travel here because it's so pretty and we've got some eccentric stories. And Hickenlooper had gotten such good national press early on when he was mayor as governor. Bennett now suddenly started getting the kind of good press Hickenlooper had gotten from George Will. But still, they are small candidates compared to some other big ones. That doesn't mean they can't hang on for a while. Hickenlooper's already talking about going on a Winnebago tour of Iowa. He's a stubborn guy. Maybe he's just going to see, can he win Iowa? He's got relatives there, or he had relatives there. They're long gone. They're in the Copal era of prehistory. But um, <laughs> he had relatives. He's got a name there. Maybe he, if he can play well in Iowa, that's a different way to do this. A Winnebago tour of Iowa. And people wonder why more don't run for president. That does sound uh, intriguing. Uh, Krista, you wrote a column about uh, John Hickenlooper and his stance he took in the debate and what uh, Democrats running or at least supporting uh, their eventual nominee could learn from that. Care to expand? Yeah, I'm proud of him. I mean, he came out with the truth, which is that if you continue to push these far extreme ideas, you're going to get elected, uh, Trump elected again. And you look at it, uh, Warren and Sanders want to take away our private health care. Buttigieg wants to rewrite the Constitution and pack the court. You've got another of ideas up there, everything from, you know, uh, taxpayer paid for abortion, paying for people's college tuition. I just paid off my M.A. I don't need to pay off other people's, uh, other people's college loans. And so you get this, this package of radical ideas. Even a never-Trumper, and I was a never-Trumper the last time around, did not vote for Trump. I'm looking at voting for Trump. And the, and the deal is, is that, yeah, it's a little bit like eating out of a dumpster, but if you're that hungry... You're going to do it. Wow. The, uh, <laughs> the, the, the images that brought on and probably are going to be recreated for the campaign are very powerful, <laughs> Chris. They're very powerful. Well done. Uh, uh, Eric, do either Hickenlooper or Bennett lose anything by just staying in the race as long as they can financially? No, they probably don't. But that's the real question is how long can they stay financially? And I, don't, I think it's a mistake to lump Hickenlooper and Bennett together. They're not, they, are, they are not the same person here. Uh, Yes, I think they will both try to soldier on here in the Winnebago tour and whatever. But if you are not in this next debate in Houston the second week of September, you don't exist. You're you're not really a candidate if you are not on the debate stage. I don't care how many hands you shake going around Iowa, how many corn cobs you eat, whatever it is. If you're not on that debate stage, you do not exist as far as this campaign is concerned. I think Hickenlooper, while to Chris's point, he might have spoke some truth, there is no lane in this party for that particular message right now. I think it was a failed strategy from the beginning. I think he probably drank too much of his own Kool-Aid, speaking of uh, a drink that came up in the, in the, in the last debate. Uh, and I'm not sure his strategy was even all that well executed. I think Bennett actually, even if he doesn't go terribly far in this race, emerges with his reputation more enhanced 
than maybe is the case with Hickenlooper. I think this has created future opportunities for, for Michael Bennett. I'm not sure that's the same with John Hickenlooper. And lastly, I think we buried the lead here. Obviously, we're a Colorado show and we're focused on the two Colorado candidates, but the real story to me out of that this week's debates was one, you know, how left that first night was with Warren and Sanders, and secondly, what a low bar we've created for Joe Biden, who's the putative front runner. And yes, he did not lose that debate, but he still looked awful, awfully, awfully old. Uh, people will accuse me of being ageist, and awfully you know, uh, raising questions about whether he can still hit the big league pitching. I, I think Democrats had have, have a lot of concern about whether he is the guy to carry that torch. I think you're personally underestimating the powerful nature of the website of Biden 30303. <laughs> so, uh, well, that remains to be seen. Uh, Anna, what's the reaction from your Colorado political connections to uh, both of their performances, I guess not only this week, but in the past? Well, uh, my colleague Nick Garcia sort of wrote uh, John Hickenlooper's political obituary after the first after the debate, um, saying that most people that we've spoken to and on background have said it's time for him to get out, and that his staff knows it. It's just that he doesn't know it yet. Uh, some want him to come home and run for Senate. Others say, no, no, we have a Senate field. Like you don't need to be a part of it. Um, I know his uh, someone in his campaign had said that Tuesday was was it Tuesday? I think it was the first debate, yeah, mm -hmm. was do or die as it gets for Hickenlooper, and I just don't feel like he did. But um, as far as Bennett, I, I, he has a lot more money uh, than Hick. I think he raised three times as much in the last cycle. People say, you know, he comes home to a Senate seat. Like, I think he can stick it out longer. Um, you know, I think Eric's right that, like, he has a future and perhaps one that's bolstered by staying a little longer. Environmental activists gathered at a Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission meeting this week expressing, expressing frustration over drilling permits being approved in Colorado. Activists shouted interruptions as oil and gas representatives spoke before the commission and law enforcement was later called. Chris says sometimes they say uh, compromise is when uh, works when both sides are still pretty upset. It sounds like both sides are still pretty <laughs> upset on this one. Activists are angry. They're the ones holding up anti-polis signs in the audience. Uh, it's not as if people on the oil and gas industry side of things are very happy about it now. Is this a good compromise, just a sign of the kind of passion involved in this issue? There's a lot of passion in this issue, and I think there's a little bit of... Uh a little bit of craziness on one side. If you're going to shout down speakers, if you're if you're if you're if your contribution to the debate is I'm going to silence the other person versus hear them out versus come to the table versus compromise. That's a that's a that's something that uh, we should all be a little bit concerned about. I'm in the middle of a book by Jonathan Haidt about a movement, primarily on the left, not exclusively, but primarily, of people who want to stop debate and silence other people, uh, people who don't favor. First Amendment, people who don't favor free speech, people who want to put an end to the argument, not participate in it. Eric, when you see something like this, is, does it feel to you more of like a, uh, a flash in the pan incident? Or do you think Colorado officials are going to have to do something about the energy on both sides coming to bear at 10 years, even 15 years ago, it would be a very banal meeting that nobody would be talking about, let alone us? Well, first to Krista's point, the book she's referencing, I believe, is called The Righteous Mind. Which, which is his latest, uh, to viewers, read it. It's good stuff. It's uh, apropos to our, to our time at the moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, there's 
just a core issue of civility, good manners, craziness, call it whatever you want, but how about we let people speak and let both sides be heard? Uh, these are people who, you know, they largely got their way. No uh, amendment or Proposition 112 went down and went down overwhelmingly, but the legislature went and came and passed, uh, what was it, Senate Bill 181. Uh, they ought to, you know, you, in politics, there are no total victories. You're never going to get 100% of what you want. But Senate Bill 181 sort of stacked the deck compared to where it had been, way in favor of health and safety concerns, way against the industry. And yet you have a fraction, a fringe element. I don't think this is the mainstream of the environmental movement, but they take a lot of the oxygen. And you have a fringe element that, will, that really doesn't believe in fossil fuels, in this economy, in this culture, in any way, shape, form. And they are willing to do anything and shout down anyone to try to get their way. And uh, some more responsible people within their movement on their own side ought to start holding them accountable. And how powerful is this vocal contingent when it comes to lawmakers? Is there going to be more pressure to do more uh, work besides uh, Senate Bill 181? I think there will be for certain lawmakers, depending on where they're located. I think what the, uh, the anger that people have there is they kind of thought that, I don't know, maybe they thought incorrectly that 181 did more than what it actually does because there's been 339 drilling permits and 40 permits for well locations that have been approved since 181 passed. And the idea that it was just all going to stop is probably fantasy. I don't think that was ever the intention of the law as created. And I think there is a group of people who are deeply upset, as Eric said, about that fact. I think we'll definitely hear more because there will be progressives pushing for more. Um, I do think that when, you know, when Polis signed this law, he said um, the oil and gas wars that have enveloped our state are over and the winners are all of us. And I kind of feel like that's his mission accomplished moment. <laughs> Yes, I wholeheartedly, when you said that, the, the banner right on the battleship was just waving in my head. That's uh, very well said, Anna. Uh, Patty, this is going to get worse before it gets better, won't it? Yes, but that's a tradition of all activism on both sides. When you look at the Western Conservative Summit, for example, the people who got the attention were the wackos on the right. Here you're getting people on the far left who are getting more attention. Happened at the GEO protest two weeks ago when the flags came down. So we remember that protests often will go... The people will pay attention to the loudest people. But there also is still good work being done. And let's point to what happened the next day up in Boulder, where Congress actually had a congressional hearing on climate change. So people are taking the environmental issues seriously, and that's what everybody should do, and just not listen when people are trying to shout you down. The prospect of a special session to address an alternative to the referendum CC proposal continues to hang in the balance. If approved, the law would permanently eliminate the Tabor cap, thereby halting refunds currently expected to be returned to state taxpayers. While referendum CC has been approved to proceed to the ballot, no discernible campaign has been mounted to date. Eric, you've been a part of a lot of campaigns in your long career. Uh, if you had to have something on this year's ballot, not next November, this November, uh, and we're told uh, you have to start your campaign tomorrow, is that enough time, even if it starts tomorrow, let alone a month from now, is that enough time to do any sort of campaign for a yes vote on any referendum? It might be enough time, but you have to consider how heavy the lift is. And this is a heavy lift to pass this particular message. I'll try to be brief because Anna actually has covered this issue and probably has more substance to offer. My take is 
that the Democrats probably went out on a limb toward the end of the session and putting this on the ballot without necessarily putting all their ducks in a row and are now being led by Governor Polis trying to scramble back, trying to come with a more palatable package, but they have to get some Republican buy-in uh, both in the legislature and in terms of broader political community support in order to pass this. Referendum C, which is now 14 years ago, which is sort of the predecessor to Prop CC, was one of the biggest campaigns the state has ever seen. It was all hands on deck. It was a coalition. It took a Republican governor in, in his last year, then Bill Owens, uh, to try to, to push it across the finish line. There is none of the mo this momentum here. And lastly, I'd note, that we're giving a lot of attention to recalls, which I think are really sort of a peripheral issue and aren't going anywhere. I think we can all agree to that. If there's going to be a pushback or a course correction to what is maybe perceived as democratic overreach, it's not going to happen through recalls. It's going to happen through ballot measures like this and, and the voters standing up and being heard, whether it's on this one or the Electoral College or on others. That's going to be the course correction, not recalls. And as Eric mentioned, you've been covering this very well. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know about what's going on? Well, um, from what I've heard, the governor isn't given up on the idea. He's still trying to find Republicans and find consensus. Uh, but the trouble is, when you pick up a couple of Republicans, you lose a few Democrats, and it's getting to 18 votes in the Senate. That's really what it's all about at this point for a special session. And it's... Because Democrats say, like, they have the votes to pass it alone, right? They have majorities in both houses. But Democrats will say in background that's political suicide. Because what the proposal is, is to extend CC to take the last fiscal year. And that means take the three to $500 million that's supposed to go out and taper tax refunds to all of us next summer and take that money, too. And, you know, coming back in special session to take even more money is political suicide, not only for elected officials, but for the ballot initiative itself. So what Polis wants to do is couple it with a tax cut, perhaps, like an income tax cut. Maybe put a limit of 10 to 15 years on CC the way RefC did. So he's, he's hoping to gather them, but... In the meantime, what's happening is there is no campaign for this ballot measure because everyone's waiting to see if it changes. And in that vacuum, the opponents are out there campaigning. They are door knocking. They are calling. They are sending mailers. And they are telling everyone why you should vote no. And that's really powerful when most people don't even know what RefCC is. So their first contact is somebody telling them to vote no. Patty, do the drafters of Reform CC in the legislature overestimate the hunger for something like this? Well, I think the biggest challenge is a lot of people don't know what Tabor is. They still <laughs> don't understand it. Passed in 92, but they don't really understand the ramifications. They know it gives them the right to vote for taxes, which I think is very popular. We're talking about a part of Tabor that's different here that CC would address, and it's much harder to explain. So creating a new campaign to get that through at the ballot box will be very tough. On the other hand, special sessions are no bonus either. If we look at the last one two years ago what with the special tax districts, and that just blew up. Nothing turned out the way they thought. So it's going to be a very tricky month to decide what to do. Uh, after, Chris, after uh, uh, several months and I think uh, a variety of uh, legal opinions that came out that was probably to Tabor's detriment. It seemed like Tabor was on yeah. the ropes, if you will. It seems like Tabor's uh, having uh, a better summer than it had spring. Uh, what do you think? You know, it, it, 
people, ever since it was uh, put into law, there are people who don't like it. They don't like the limitation on taxation. They don't like the refunds. They don't like anything about it. And they will go through anything, whether it's a ballot initiative, whether it's a court case, to get rid of it. And you know what? I guess these are all legal means. In a sense, I suppose they're all ethical, um, in a sense. The fact that uh, you know people want to oppose it, that, that's fine. That's their right. My concern is, well, I wouldn't call it a concern. I would love to see the Democrats run this simply because what's the message there? They want to take your refund and they want to take your presidential vote. What is that going to do that's going to get Republicans and right-leaning independents out to vote and Democrats that kind of like their refund, kind of like their vote, they're going to stay home. So I'd like to say, go for it. <laughs> see, I think seeing your uh, encouragement is probably not going to be the one that wins the day, but I, I get your point, Greg. I get your point, Krista. Cycling advocates were vocal this week after a Denver woman was struck and killed by a car near Washington Park. Residents who are against adding more bike lanes have said that the added protection would violate historical features of the neighborhoods. And most of the time we talk about bike lanes, especially on this show, it's been mm-hmm. about uh, transportation and options and people out of their cars. Yeah. Actually talking about safety is a, a much bigger deal and could be, frankly, a political winner. Do you think we're going to hear more about safety when it comes to bike lanes? Yeah, I think so. So the city of Denver, only about a fifth of their current lanes are protected. And this is like the barriers or the little poles to prevent. And the argument that they make is that the woman who died, Alexis Bounds, like uh, the truck didn't uh, reportedly didn't see her and crossed into the bike lane that had none of these barriers or protections. And the argument is, had it been there, she would likely still be alive. And that's a really visceral argument because she has these beautiful photos with her young children. And it's... But I think the question for Denver, too, is um, how much do they want to spend on this infrastructure? Now they're discussing spending even more money. But um, we just had a story out today that says to build out the full network of bike lanes, as they have on the books now, is 18 years. People in Longmont uh, know how long it is to wait for some sort of transportation <laughs> off for 18 years. Denver's not used to that kind of wait. Uh, Patty, um, you're a longtime Denverite. How is Denver going to respond to this one? I think it's going to be really mixed. People are, as Anna said, there are these unbelievable pictures and the sadness of what happened to this woman. Second big death this, this month, or in the in July, of a bike activist, or in the, her case, just someone who wanted to take a uh, spin around the park. But it is tricky because there is... If we're still looking at 18 years to build out what had been planned before, if you drop things to make safety in a bike lane that was a bike lane, I mean, it was a, the dump truck just maybe didn't see it or just ignored it, um, that will slow things down still further. And other people in other parts of town, it's not that they're so worried about the historic ramifications for Marion Parkway. They're worried about when will I ever get my bike lane. Krista, what do you think is the reaction that we're going to see from the city of Denver on this one? You know, I hope they they work on those bike lanes. We're going to see more and more people biking, whether it's biking to work, biking for pleasure, whether it's wanting to reduce their carbon footprint. People like to be on bikes, and we need to have structures in place so that they remain safe. And you think about it, you know, Washington Park is a beautiful neighborhood, but it's not, you know, we're not... We're not capturing what it was 100 years ago. There's all kinds of modern things, from from signs to modern cars to modern streetlights. So to add some protections for bikers, I think, is important. And I also want to put a plug out for my friends. It's called BikeStreets.com by uh, my friend Avi. It's a way of getting off some of the busy streets and onto the less busy streets. So I, I see a combination of private and public initiatives to try to make biking safer because it's going to get a lot more common. 
Eric, wrap it up for us. Well, obviously, it's a tragic story with this woman and, and, and her family. I know the intersection. I bike through it regularly. It is a dedicated bike lane. I mean, you know, you're not sharing uh, the lane, obviously. Uh, there was an accident here, and somebody wandered into the dedicated bike lane. As avid as a, bi a bicyclist as I am, I have to say that if this town is going to spend $10, 20000000 million, whatever is being talked about, on transportation right now, I think there are other issues. Witness all of us and just struggles getting here for the taping through traffic. And yes, to Chris's point, biking is going to grow, and I'm part of that growth. But biking by itself is not the only transit need in this town right now, and I'm not even sure it's number one. It is time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, please start us off. 30 years ago yesterday, the Rocky, the first ever grand jury in Colorado, special grand jury was impaneled, the Rocky Flats grand jurors. They spent two and a half years considering evidence seized at the raid at Rocky Flats. They wanted to indict people. Instead, justice sealed a deal. Now, just this week, we found out that 60-plus boxes of documents from the grand jury that had been subpoenaed for a case are lost. They cannot be found by the Justice Department. We were going to cover that today, but it was uh, the, the part of our, can our script was suddenly disappeared just a few days later. <laughs> if you do have those boxes, by the way, send them to me because I'm not done with that story. <laughs> Krista. So a, a bunch of people attacked some uh, people getting signatures for the recall polis campaign. Uh, two women out there, they had their tables and chairs and their, you know, their recall petitions. Somebody came up, attacked them. They were joined by some liberal activists. Tables were turned over. You know, come on. If you if you like Polis, don't sign it. You want him recalled, sign it. L let's not resort to violence. Eric. State Judicial Department hasn't had a very good last month. Uh, the scandal, the, and kudos to the Denver Post, a couple Denver Post people here for doing some really good investigative journalism. But whether it's that brewing scandal, and we're going to see how much transparency comes out of that judicial department, whether it's a Denver District Court judge giving a 45-day sentence for a rape conviction, which is just inexplicable in my mind. Judge John Madden might be a name voters want to remember next time he's on the ballot whether it's the mess Beth McCann made out of whether or not to get rid of her deputy. Not been a good month. Anna. I was actually going to go back to the COGCC meeting because I think, like, I, you know, I cover a lot of committee hearings, and there's a lot of rules about not interrupting speakers, not making noise that would distract. People are listening online, and they can't hear if people are shouting over it. And I just think, you know, if the COGCC chairman has to have the police come in to bring order, like, I think it's, you know, I think it's disrespectful regardless of party ideology. Like, you can wear your shirts, you can wear your masks, you can be in silent protest. They, at the Capitol, they do this thing for, like, if you agree with the speaker. Like, there are ways of making it work that isn't shouting down your opponents. Time to see something nice rather quickly. Patty. If you haven't been up to Central City for the opera, there are a few more days. Krista. Hickenlooper and Bennett, you did, you did our state proud. I know that they're not going to be probably on the scene much longer, but we're proud of them. Eric. I was going to the same place, Krista. I'll give a shout-out to University Hospital. I had some surgery out there recently. Great facility, incredible asset to the state. Anna. I was actually going to go with the people who put together the Trump portrait hanging uh, the other day at the Capitol because they didn't turn it into a campaign rally. They made it more about the presidential gallery. And there was a really great point that, like, every man that's already up on that wall was as loved and as hated by members of his party and his opposition in his own time. And that, you know, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, it'll just be another painting on the gallery wall. And I thought it was, they really struck the right note, and they tried not to make it, like, a political rally. 
Somebody at the state capitol talked about perspective? <laughs> <laughs> Winners will never cease. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. Thank you.